0: Hi everyone, David Harris here, and it's time for your Supreme Court Roundup. Well, they've done it again. Your U.S. Supreme Court has ended its term, usually right at the end of June. This year was no exception. Plenty of big cases, some smaller ones, all of great interest to this audience. I know that. We're going to talk to you about the criminal cases. And then we're going to do the survey of all of the big ones on the docket because that's what we do here. Yes. So let's get started, like I said, with criminal cases. We did one of these for you in a bonus episode not very long ago. That is the Lang case. That's the one where the police officer walked up into the defendant's garage after the defendant had driven into it. And this all followed, the police officer turning his lights and siren on, the defendant not pulling over but just driving a short distance up his own driveway and into his own garage. Now, as you know from a case that the Supreme Court itself decided just a couple of years ago involving a motorcycle, police officers are not allowed to go into a home or into the places directly adjacent to the home, the so-called curtilage, things like the driveway and the garage, without a warrant, because they're just like the home, and going into a home requires a warrant. Now, how did the, po- the police justify going into the man's garage? Well, they said it was a hot pursuit. Now, hot pursuit is an exception to the warrant requirement. And there are cases on the books in which the Supreme Court has allowed police officers without warrants to pursue somebody into a dwelling. The Santana case is one that comes to mind for those of you out there with a Little bit of legal training, you probably remember that case from your class that covered the Fourth Amendment. So did the hot pursuit doctrine apply here? Did you have, in other words, police hotly pursuing a defendant from the scene of a crime, something like that? And the Supreme Court said no. This police officer was not justified in following the defendant into his garage. Uh, This was only a misdemeanor at best for which the police officer was pulling him over. It was some kind of a noisy muffler thing or noisy radio thing. And the fact that the man hadn't pulled over didn't elevate it to the level of a felony. So for this case, anyway, that level of misdemeanor is not enough to invoke the hot pursuit doctrine. You can't just march into somebody's premises without a warrant in hot pursuit of such a minor crime. What else did we have on the criminal docket? Well, one to talk about is certainly Jones versus Mississippi. This decision by six to three uh, harkens back to recent Supreme Court cases about juveniles sentenced to life without parole. Now, you may remember there was a case not that many years ago in which the Supreme Court said that states that sentenced juveniles to life without parole sentences that were mandatory upon conviction under state law for certain very serious crimes, that that wasn't constitutionally allowed it can't be mandatory and therefore all those people sentenced to juvenile life without parole sentenced as juveniles for crimes committed when they are juveniles to mandatory life without parole i mean an essentially an, an insane cruel thing but lots of states have that including my own state it could not be mandatory so the issue in jones versus mississippi is kind of similar In these life without parole sentences for juveniles, uh, uh, the judges have generally been required by state law to make a finding that the juvenile is, quote, incorrigible. What does that old word mean? It means irredeemable cannot be rehabilitated under any circumstances and you can really understand why state laws often require that not all states but most why because they're kids even a 15 16 17 year old person convicted of a serious crime is still not a full adult not in a legal sense and certainly not in the brain sense. If you've ever raised a teenager, that's you know, you've got direct experience. But the scientists tell us the same thing. Their judgment and their brains, the, the judgment centers in the brains. They are not fully developed. That's the whole rationale really behind juvenile court. These are kids, and kids change by nature. They grow, they mature, and they can almost always become redeemable. Um, So that's why we've always required those things. Well, Mississippi law did not require this. And this judge in the Jones case sentenced a juvenile to life without parole without making any finding of incorrigibility. You get the context now? And the Supreme Court said, that's okay. It's all right, you can do that. you know there's no nothing that says in the Constitution you must have a judge make a finding that the juvenile is irredeemable, cannot be re- rehabilitated is incorrigible. This whole idea of sentencing juveniles to life without parole to essentially death inside prison is just unspeakable i'm I'm editorializing here uh when you know that human beings change a lot between ages uh, 16 17 And 23, their brains change a lot. Their judgment comes into focus. I mean, you know people like this, I'm sure, in your own lives. But yet, our justice system thinks it's okay to throw them away forever. And now, under the Jones case, there need not even be a finding that the person is not redeemable. Another criminal law case, Edwards versus Vinoy. Now, this will sound real technical, but it has big implications. What this case decided was that when the Supreme Court makes a new rule in an area of criminal law that might benefit defendants, there's always a question about whether or not the rule should apply only retrospectively, looking forward, only to cases coming down the pike that haven't been decided, or whether it is such an important rule that it also applies to cases that have already been decided. And in Edwards versus Vinoy, the Supreme Court announced that new rules of criminal procedure that benefit defendants Uh, Those rules don't apply retroactively to people uh, whose convictions are already final. So if you already have a final conviction, tough luck. The rule might be important, the new rule announced by the Supreme Court, but it doesn't apply to you. So don't bother trying to renew your appeals last uh, case on the criminal docket that I'm going to talk about is actually a civil case but you'll see right away how it ties into criminal law uh, this case is called Tanzine versus Tanvir and in this case uh, uh, decided 8-0 to zero by the Supreme Court Justice Barrett not participating because she wasn't on the court at the time of the argument uh, this was a lawsuit brought by a group of Muslim men, and they had been put on the no-fly list. Remember that? You know, war on terror, all that stuff. You can't get on an airplane because you're on the no-fly list. And uh, these men had been put on the list, they alleged, because they had refused law enforcement requests, mostly by the FBI, to become informants against others in their community, uh, um, uh, their religious community. And in retaliation, they allege, uh, the government had put them on the no-fly list, and they wanted to bring a federal civil lawsuit in order to get themselves off that list uh, and, and further than that, to seek monetary damages from the federal agents. The Supreme Court ruled that they could go ahead with their lawsuit. They are allowed to do that um, and uh, that those kinds of cases can proceed. I think you can easily see the tie in with Criminal law, there. There are a couple of other miscellaneous criminal cases. I'm not going to go into them here. Those are the big ones for the term. What else did the Supreme Court decide? Well, I'm sure you heard that uh, at the behest of uh, various state attorneys general and people like that, um, six people sued yet again to try to overturn Obamacare. This case was called California versus Texas. Third time third time. Uh, And uh, this was sort of the last gasp attempt uh, to get rid of Obamacare entirely uh, when the Supreme Court had refused twice before to do that for them. This time, the Supreme Court turned them down. The basis was what we call standing. Uh, They said that these plaintiffs, because they had never had to pay any kind of penalty, the Congress got rid of that in 2017, that they had experienced no injury from the existence of Obamacare, and therefore they had no right to sue To bring a lawsuit, especially a federal court lawsuit, you need what's called a case or controversy in order to show that you have a real case, right? You you can't just go to the Supreme Court or the federal court for legal advice or for advice to the government or something like that. You actually have to have experienced real injury or there has to be a real direct Uh, expectation that you could experience the conduct that you're suing against and here there just wasn't anything like that so these people have no standing to sue Uh, obamacare skates away again and let's just hope that this is the last one i think three strikes and you're out should be the rule Uh, two cases from pennsylvania i want to tell you about we're now obviously on the civil side Uh, these are both civil cases one out of philadelphia The Philadelphia city laws uh, prohibit discrimination and among those they protect from discrimination are LGBTQ people, uh, and uh, therefore, when Catholic Charities, which is a big force in adoptions and foster care in many cities around the country, Catholic Charities wanted to sign a contract with the city of Philadelphia in order to do what they had done before, which was to provide services in regard to foster care placements. However, Catholic Charities Being Catholic, they said they would not serve uh, gay couples, LGBTQ people who wanted to serve as foster parents. They would exclude them because of their religious beliefs. Okay, so you see the issue. Uh, uh, Philadelphia wants help placing foster children, uh, but they have a law saying we don't employ people if they're going to discriminate. And Catholic Charities says, uh, sorry, we're not going to do this service at all for gay or lesbian or other LGBTQ couples. Um, So the battle is joined. Right. The Supreme Court sided with Catholic Charities. Charities. This is not the first time, uh, it, is, it is the manyth time, if that's a word, that we see this Supreme Court siding with religious rights and religious liberties over other rights. So here we're seeing uh, the religious rights of Catholic charities. Uh, triumph over LGBTQ rights to being treated in a non-discriminatory way. Now, it's a fairly narrow decision. Chief Justice Roberts wrote it in a way uh, that it is really just a reference to the contract terms uh, for the city of Philadelphia. Uh, He said, city of Philadelphia, you could have given an exception to your contract terms to Catholic charities. You should have done that like anybody else would get an exception for various things like their religious beliefs." And therefore, uh, struck this down and said uh, Catholic charities should be eligible too. Uh, and the real conservatives on the court, the, the, the Alito Thomas wing of the court, if you like, was very disappointed in how narrow the decision was. Uh, they looked at this as a real opportunity to strike for religious liberty. Nevertheless, they won. They won uh, with religious liberty triumphing over gay rights. Uh, If you you care about gay rights, LGBTQ rights, uh, you could legitimately see this as a setback. The other case coming to the Supreme Court out of Pennsylvania involved free speech and kids in school. This involved uh, uh, a high school student young woman who uh, failed to make the varsity cheerleading squad and her reaction to this. uh, We were talking about uh, teens and brain development and so forth. Well, uh, what did she do? Uh, she recorded a Snapchat video in which she said, F cheerleading, F the school, F everything. You know, held middle fingers held up along with her friend. Uh, now, this didn't really uh, affect the universe uh, or anything, but the school was mighty pissed. I'm sure you can't say pissed in that school either. And uh, they suspended her from any possibility of cheerleading for a year. She went to court, and the Supreme Court sided with the kid, saying that children do not check all their free speech rights at the schoolhouse door. We knew this from older cases, Um, uh, but uh, uh, even more so, uh, the issue was that the speech took place outside the school. It was not on school grounds. Uh, and therefore, the, uh, uh, the school authorities had much less of an interest. Now, this gets a little complex because you can understand why school authorities would have authority to regulate speech and conduct in school. After all, they have, you know, a, a physical custody of the kids and they, they, they have to make sure that the, the, the learning environment is maintained, that there's no danger, things like that. And the Supreme Court is careful to say the school authorities still have legal authority to maintain those things on the school's campus. Uh, But this was off the campus, and it seemed to have no impact whatsoever on matters occurring in school. Now, here's the thing. This young lady who made the Snapchat video, she wasn't standing on her lawn Uh, uh, off the school campus just yelling out these things about the school to passing cars or pedestrians she was putting this on social media and we cannot ignore that the world is now different because of social media when the uh, young lady records this on snapchat yeah it's supposed to disappear all that but it gets around it it pervades the student body and the atmosphere of the school even if it occurred off campus so the supreme court while it says that the School overstepped its authority in disciplining her for something that didn't happen on campus. They seem perfectly open going forward to school authorities intervening in other kinds of free speech social media contexts in the future. So, in other words, they're not ruling that out depending on the circumstances. And Justice Breyer, who wrote the main opinion here, he says, you know, what if it was bullying? What if it was threats against teacher? Those kind of things would be within the purview of the school to do something about, even if those videos or, you know, social media statements were recorded or typed or whatever off-campus it's not the off-campus thing in other words that is the deciding factor it's whether it affects the school so this issue isn't uh forever put to bed all right this young lady won her case uh, in f the cheerleading and f the school and so forth but expect to see these issues return because social media as we know is not going anywhere and it's kind of a cesspool okay what else happened during this term a couple of cases that you might have heard about um, the uh, uh, the the Supreme Court sided with college athletes in a case called NCAA uh, versus Alston. Um, this was a case brought by uh, college athletes opposing NCAA rules that kept them from earning any money. In particular, in this case, it was about earning money uh, by promotion of their names, their likenesses, their endorsements, uh, their appearances as characters in video games about sports, and so forth. And the Supreme Court said that uh, that the NCAA has no business telling student-athletes what they can do in this sphere. Uh, Doing so, keeping them from doing so, is in fact an antitrust violation, and it can't keep them from doing that. Now, that may sound kind of narrow, and it's probably true that there are a very small number of college athletes who are going to make any kind of real money from endorsements and shoe companies and having themselves recognized and and become characters in video games and so forth. It's your high-profile quarterbacks and receivers and 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 the star of the basketball team on the championship squad and so forth. The vast majority of athletes, if they get any kind of endorsement deal or any kind of thing from their agent, it's going to be you know endorsing Joe's used cars in the college town or a restaurant or something like that they're not talking thousands and millions they're talking hundreds all right but the real significance here is that it breaks up a huge hole into the ncaa's many decades old argument that college athletics has to be about amateurism and you can't have them earning any money they get a scholarship and that's it in the meantime, the giant complex of collegiate athletics is earning millions and billions from TV uh, revenue. Coaches are paid millions. Um, The universities are making millions, at least some of them, and the students aren't paid. And that is going to end. That is going to end. That's the real significance of this case. It's not the direct facts that arose here in this case uh, it is that it will destroy the ncaa's uh defense of its bogus amateurism rules that have existed for too long taken advantage of too many students they are unpaid labor and that is going to change now i've saved the best for last or at least the most important uh by my lights there were voting rights cases. And this is really important. If you've been listening to the news over the last, you know, six months since the November election, you've heard these things about voter fraud without evidence and Uh, lack of integrity in the voting system without evidence. And what this has done is it has given cover to a lot of legislators in states who want to keep people from voting. And let's talk about Georgia and its new voting laws. Texas is now trying to do the same thing. And these states are not alone. They're not the only ones by any stretch of the imagination. State legislatures are either passing or getting ready to pass Uh, laws that will make it much more difficult for people to vote. Bottom line, and those people will tend to be uh, members of racial and ethnic minority groups, black people, brown people, and women. Okay, Uh, these range from the good old uh, example of voter ID laws to revoking the ability to have uh, uh, absentee or or in-person voting on Sunday to uh, 24 hour voting to ballot drop boxes to all kinds of things. States are taking these away because they were very effective in increasing the ability of people to vote. And for these politicians, it didn't work for them. That was really not so fun to see themselves losing elections. Well, two cases uh, up in the Supreme Court from Arizona uh, under the moniker Brnovich versus DNC. And in this Arizona uh, dispute, you had two Arizona laws that were in play. Uh, one that prohibited third parties from collecting mail-in ballots and turning them in on behalf of others, and another law that would just disallow any votes that happened to be cast correctly but in the wrong precinct. Not count them at all, they just wouldn't count because they were in the wrong precinct. The court, in an opinion by Justice Alito, ruled that the state was on very solid legal ground when making these laws. Uh, The case was, of course, made to the court that these laws would directly and, you know, maybe intendedly uh, disenfranchise those very groups I talked about. And he basically said in his opinion for the court, Justice Alito said, well, yeah, so there are lots of other ways to vote. You can't find a law unconstitutional, he said, just because it has a disparate impact on certain People. We don't know who he's talking about. Uh, it has to be a very large, a substantial disparate impact. As long as there are other ways to vote, we're going to think about the, that possibility too. And uh, therefore, these particular laws will stand. Let me tell you what this means. It means that laws like Georgia's new laws and the laws Texas is trying to pass, and in so many other states, these are going to be much, much harder to challenge and get thrown out as unconstitutional this decision make no mistake this decision is a dagger at the heart of the voting rights act now you may remember uh, if you can think back a few years a case called shelby county This was another Voting Rights Act, and in an opinion by the Chief Justice, he got rid of a major piece of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. He said that states that want to do this kind of manipulation of the vote, where there is a long history of voter discrimination, those were required, those states and counties would be required under the Voting Rights Act to get pre-clearance from the Department of Justice before they could make moves like remove polling places and uh, uh, change the process in ways that were likely to impact voter participation. Chief Justice Roberts got rid of that part of the Voting Rights Act. He found it unconstitutional. This case, in my estimation, Brnovich, this is a near-fatal blow to the Voting Rights Act, Um, if you think this doesn't matter, boy, uh, I mean, this is huge. This is huge. The vote is the heart of democracy. That's why there's all the argument about it. That's what determines who counts in this country, who gets to make political decisions. And this is going to make it much easier For those who want to restrict the vote, who want to keep certain people away from the polls, working people, black people, brown people, want to keep them from voting, it's going to make it easier for them to do that because it will be much harder for individuals or for the federal government to challenge these laws. So, this is not a good decision for the democratic process, and I see democratic with a small d, not a party, but democracy itself. That's it. That's your roundup of the U.S. Supreme Court's term Just ended here in July of 2021. It ended in June. You can always turn to us here on Criminal Injustice for the latest about the criminal legal system uh, and so many other things going on that impact the law in our society. With this uh, episode, we'll be taking our summer hiatus. We'll be bringing you some of our favorite episodes from the last year uh, to tide you over until we come back in just a few weeks with a bunch of fresh content for you. We'll have a few bonuses dropping here and there. Um, But it's been great being with you these last few months. We'll be back soon. And I am David Harris I'll be back with you next time.